This is a rather uh, interesting passage that we are studying. Uh, right off the bat, let me say that uh, I think the less interesting read and I think the inaccurate, the incorrect way to read this passage is to think of this as a doomsday passage. Uh, I don't think Paul is saying the world is going to end and therefore we should uh, get our act together because we don't want to be caught with our hands in the cookie jar. Uh, so uh, I think some theologians read it that way. Most of the good commentators certainly don't read it that way. Uh, Paul, as a context for an author, uh, he's not an end times preacher guy. He wasn't wearing a sandwich board and he wasn't condemning people to hell. He just was always living with this sense of the imminence of Christ. Jesus was very real to him, and Jesus uh, was somebody that he had met in person. And so the reality uh, of sort of the, the real context of his life, you know, was the imminence of Jesus. And so he often switched back and forth very freely, naturally, between talking about the time and talking about love like he did last week. And so this isn't all of a sudden Paul talking about the end times. And that is also my read, that this is a passage for us today. And there's much to be uh, learned from here today. Uh, I want to, as part of my introduction, just uh, give you a couple of things to bracket our uh, talk today. From verse 11, I want to point out this word to you, time. Uh, this word that's translated in English as time, do this knowing the time. This Greek word is the word kairos. That's not the word for chronological time. That comes on later when it says that it is already the hour. But here, when it says knowing the time, that's kairos. And that time uh, is a really hard word to translate into the English because there's no English word for it. Uh, the best phrase for it, I think, is the phrase moment in time. And the best one-word translation for kairos is the word timing. Like the timing is right. I remember driving to Chicago, sitting with Susie's dad on my left, Susie's mom to my right, and I asked for Susie's hand in marriage and their blessing. And they said, why now? She just graduated. Can you give us a, a year or two to just reconnect with our daughter and get to know her? You know, she was just a little kid when she left. And I said, you know, I think the time is now. I didn't mean like this time, this chronological time. I mean, timing was right there's something in the air about timing. Or when I was planning churches, you know, and I'm working with church planners, always asking, why now? What, what is it about now? Why do you want to do it? And then their answer invariably is, I think it's time. Well, what do you mean it's time? Well, I, it's time. It's time. When it's time, it's time. Time is now. And what we mean by that, what we mean by Kairos, the timing is right, the timing is now, is that there's sort of an implied storyline when we talk about timing. That there's things set in motion, there's layers and other facets, factors at play, and there's a convergence. And we're intuiting it, we're seeing it on some other level beyond the visible, and we say, it's fulfilled, it's now. 
It's, it's go time. And we get that. We sense that there is a kind of urgency and a, a proper impatience of that time. It's time. Okay, second phrase I want to um, uh, bracket this talk with is the phrase, awaken from sleep. Clearly, Paul isn't talking about people who are literally physically sleeping and he's wanting to wake them up. That's not it. Uh, But he's talking about waking up to a new reality. Have you ever been unaware of reality? And you sort of shake your head and go, oh my gosh, was it always there? How come I didn't see it before? You're trying to describe the fact that, yeah, I was awake, but I have a new kind of clarity Or I sense a priority to something that I just didn't recognize before. This is important. This is relevant. And so the way you see it is like compared to how you were thinking. You feel a sobriety now compared to what feels like now intoxication before. I certainly had this kind of awakening from sleep uh, with Susie. I mean, I saw her, I knew her, I loved her, I pursued her, but it took years for me to just sort of shake my head and go, oh my gosh, she's a real person. Like, she has feelings, and they're, they're, she has really good thoughts, and she has hopes and dreams, and she's three-dimensional, and life isn't just about me, but it's, wow, she's so valid and legitimate, and she's, I respect her, I And I just woke up to her one day. Folks, it only took 10 years. (laughs) Some of you are frowning at me like, what is wrong with you? You've been listening to me for a while. You have your theory. That's what's wrong with me. That's it right there. You got it. But I woke up to her one day. I woke up to leadership and doing ministry as a pastor, you know. I started doing ministry just because I was like, oh, I got to start churches because I don't know where to bring my friends to. And I'm kind of embarrassed about the other churches. So I'm going to start. That's how I literally just, I just started. No thought to what being a pastor is. No thought to what leadership is or if that's even a thing. I just had passion. I had an idea and I just started going for it. And then one day I just woke up to this reality. Oh, this is like a thing. I have to be a leader. I have to be a pastor. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing happening here. You ever have these moments? I had it as a parent. You know, like one day we just started having kids. And that moment is crazy when you're in the hospital and they're taking care of you and nurses are checking in all the time. The whole institution is sort of Right there, helping you to make sure. And then two days later, they kick you to the curb, literally. And the guy's like, well, go get your car. Bring your car seat up. Strap your baby in, and we'll see you later. Have a nice life. And the next thing you know, I'm fumbling my, you know, with the seatbelt, hoping it's put in the right way. And then we're home, like, by ourselves, staring at each other, going, what have we done? We have made a big mistake. I can't believe this world, this civilized country, would just release a baby into our arms. They have no idea who we are. They have no idea what our home is like. How, what are they thinking? What were we thinking? And then one day, it was like, oh, I'm a dad. 
I know how to do this. I, oh, bring out one more kid. Do another one. You know what? Make it four. Because I woke up. I awakened to this reality of what little kids are and what it just clicked. I saw it. Priority, clarity, relevance, importance. Get it? This is what Paul is saying. It's now. Time is now. Wake up to this reality, this world all around you. You guys are sleeping. Open your eyes. And that's sort of the, the, the emotional context okay, of this passage. Two things, two ideas, night and day. Okay, we start with night. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Uh, This word lust is the Greek word epithumia. Okay, the word epi, some of you have heard me explain this before. Epi is a Greek uh, prefix for over. Okay, and thumia is the Greek word for desire. And it's not a negative word. It's not a positive word. It's just a descriptive word. And together, we will literally translate this word into the English, over-desire. And I wish we had translated it that way. Um, but uh, that's the literal definition. And I love thinking about it this way because Paul actually uses this word positively in a number of cases. For example, he uses the word epithumia to describe his longing to be with Christ. He says, I epithumia to be with Christ, but I am glad I'm here for your sake. So he says that in another one of his letters. Often it's translated here, uh, the way it is here, as lust. But it's this idea of over-desiring something, desiring, wanting something too much. Now, desires in and of themselves are of God. God gave us our desires. You and I, our problem is that we have these really good, legitimate, God-given, imago de image of God desires, but then we overdo it. We make these good things, as my, uh, one of my uh, mentors says, ultimate things. Good things become ultimate things. And when, when, when things become ultimate, then we start putting a lot of pressure on it. We start looking to it. We start wanting it too much. And the end result is that we are even willing to walk in darkness instead of light because we want it so badly. And it happens often unbeknownst to us. Here's a story I'm going to tell you. Now, warning It may cause my stock to go down with some of you, but it's such a good story. And in all fairness to me, this was many moons ago, okay? Uh, Just, you know, but it's it's a fun story. (laughs) So I'm in Ikea, and I decide one day that I'm going to get into candles. And uh, I thought, you know, what what are the... You know, what's the lowest way to, cheapest way to get into candles? I decide tea, tea lights, you know, those small little 
cylinders, very cheap. You can buy a whole pack of them at Ikea for a cheap price. And I need a little glass thing to go with it, right? So these are tea light holders. And at that time, Ikea sold them for like six for a dollar. Very heavy-duty, dense glass tea light holders. And that's what's pictured behind me there. I don't think it looks like that one. I couldn't find the one I have. Uh, But I got myself 12 tea light holders. And they were individually sold at the time. So I counted out 12, brought them to the cashier, and I paid for 12. But as I was about to leave, I just had this thought like, I think she missed one. I think I only sort of subconsciously count, uh, counted her wrapping six, uh, uh, tw- 11 of them in this tissue paper thing. But then something else happened. I forgot about it. I went home. But then I remembered. And as soon as I got home, I started unwrapping the tissue paper that these glass tea light holders are wrapped in. And guess what? One, two, three, 10, 11, 11. Where's the 12th one? Look at the receipt. I paid for 12. I was charged $2 for 12 tea light holders. And then I thought, what do I do? And this is where the New York City uh, sort of survival, street, street survivor kicked in. And uh, so I decided, you know, Ikea seasons, I see Ikea visits come in seasons. Like you don't go for six months and then you go three times in a week. So this is one of those times. So I, I'm having to go to Ikea again. And I have this plan. And I decide, you know, they don't, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to believe me. So then what I decide to do is I'm going to take one. But I'm going to buy other things. But I'm going to take one tea light holder. And I'm just so hot and red and nervous the whole time. My heart is beating out of my chest. My body temperature was way elevated. I'm sweating, and I'm experiencing the spotlight effect. You know what that is? When you think everybody's just watching you. And I'm walking through the aisle, and I'm getting some other things. But the only thing I can think of is this tea light holder I'm about to steal. And I think, oh, but, you know, uh, it's not. And I'm not sure how it happened. It's all kind of a blur. And I'm sure this is very disappointing to some of you. But I took one. 20 cents or 15 cents. And I put it on my person somewhere. And I don't know how I did it, but it was just, I was just in such, just physiologically, I was breaking down. And I go to the cashier and I'm just, <laughs> my heart is just beating so hard. And she charges me for my other things, we pay for it. And I walk out and I realize I made it. And the whole ride home, I'm just regretting my decision, and I just feel so bad. And I just think, why can't I have just bought one or just taken the loss or talked to them? They probably wouldn't want to lose a customer over 15 cents. They would have given me one. It was a matter of principle, but why? And just, I was just, and several times for years to come after this, I thought about the fact that I should probably return this tea light holder. And here's the funny thing. I think part of it, because my conscience was violated, I never used them. Not 12, not one. I just never quite get, could get myself to emotionally open up. To the, the whole point of candles is like kind of peace. And I mean, just the irony. But here's the, here's the thing I want you to hear. The moment I decided and committed myself to this course of action... 
something got like tweaked in me. My mind just went down a certain pathway. And it's what later theologians uh, um, called the heart curving in in on itself. It just starts twisting. And so my thoughts became dark and it became about this 15 cent tea light holder. And I had just way too many thoughts about why this was the absolute right way to go about it. I lost objectivity. I became subjective. And I felt like the whole world knew about this. And they were always going to know. And I started to feel like the lights in Ikea were too bright. When did Ikea install new lights? Well, they didn't. But I suddenly loved darkness. You understand? I know it's, it's a stupid example because it's so small. But it doesn't take much for us to start curving in. And we start loving darkness rather than light. And our, our speech changes, our thoughts, the things that drive what we say, when we say, to whom we say, how much we say, how little we say. Everything starts shifting just a little bit. And that's what the Bible here in verse 14 calls the flesh. Now, this word flesh in the Greek is the word sark, sark or sarks. And it's not a negative word. In fact, God uses it positively when he says, I poured out my spirit on all flesh. It just means humanity or humankind. But regularly, it's used to talk about the opposite of the spirit. And the spirit is light. And God is spirit. And we have a choice as, as creatures made of flesh, but made of flesh in the image of God, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, Scripture says. We have a choice to make these spiritual decisions to love light, as small as they may be or as large as they are, or we act out of our flesh. And I, as I say this, I'm absolutely confident that every single person in this room Maybe you haven't stolen, but you've made flesh decisions where you just sort of made a decision to be jealous or to gossip or to cheat or to lie or to deceive. And something calls you to love darkness or to need to love darkness. I'm confident you've had these moments when you knew It wasn't your spirit that was engaged. It was your flesh. Why did you do it? Well, because you over-desired something. Well, desiring justice and wanting the merchandise to match the receipt, that's completely legit. You know, and I think we have lots of legitimate desires. In fact, you know, I define sins as illegitimate ways to meet legitimate needs. I think every need, every single need as crooked as they may seem now, at the center of it, the seed of that need is legitimate. Whatever need you have, it's good. And God wants to use that need to love you and to draw you to himself and to build community and society and allow us to experience love as we mutually meet each other's legitimate needs. But we have to do it in legitimate ways. But when we over-desire something, when we mistrust the authorities in our life, then we start figuring out ways to illegitimately meet our at once 
legitimate needs. And they become over-desires. They become epithumias in our life. And then darkness, night is setting in. Oh, it takes nothing for night to come. In fact, you know what? I may go return it this week. I checked Ikea last night, and they don't sell the same ones anymore. The ones pictured, this one is the one they sell now. Way more modern looking, but I don't know. What am I going to say? And then there is day. Verse 12 and 14, I want to alert you to these two phrases. Put on the armor of light, you see there? And then in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word put on here in the original language is not like put on like just put on as in clothing, but it means to literally sink into. The Greek word literally is fall into be wrapped in, be completely immersed in. So you want to think like bath rather than like hand faucet. And you want to think bath robe, not socks. Okay, you got that image? You're sinking into it. You're wrapping yourself into it. So you want to wrap yourself with the armor of light. You want to wrap yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the literal meaning is to wrap or to sink into, but the actual directive here, what Paul, I think, is saying here, when you wrap yourself, and it's used this way throughout the New Testament, is you're letting your identity be taken over by it. Imagine that you are wrapped up so much so that you become invisible. You're hidden completely. So scripture talks about being, putting on the garment of righteousness so that it's not your skin that's exposed anymore. It's not your clothes by which you present yourself, right? So the scripture is talking about putting on the blood of Christ. And so you are giving identity and power over to this thing that's wrapping you in. And so the directive here, it means that regardless of who you are, you have a new identity that you're living out of. So the simplest way I can think of is to say, no matter what you feel, no matter what mood or mode you're in, just do it. Just do the right thing. And that's what this means. Do the right thing. Put on the armor of light. Just walk in the light. You don't feel, just do it. And the question is, well, Paul's saying this, but how do we do it? What, what does he mean, just do it? Where do we find the courage to do that? How do we know what to do? And so let me conclude here with a kind of a longer conclusion uh, and application here. Anybody recognize this image here? Yeah, very, very famous image. This is from the year 1986. I remember this year because the Mets won the World Series probably for the first and last time in my lifetime. Also, the Space Shuttle Challenger, uh, and that's what this image is, exploded 73 seconds after liftoff. Uh, and it was made famous especially because a civilian was on board, a school teacher named Sharon Krista McAuliffe. Do you recall that name? 
What happened? Why did the shuttle explode? Alan McDonald, an engineer uh, who was in charge of signing off on a crucial aspect of the fuel portion of the space shuttle, shuttle, warned NASA to delay the launch and to not go ahead with it the next day. He was overridden, and his superiors uh, and the people to whom he reported at NASA overruled him. They went around him to Allen's boss, and they said to Allen's boss, we need somebody from your organization to sign off on this launch, particularly having to do with the O-rings that Allen McDonald is refusing to sign off on. Alan McDonald's boss ordered him to sign off on these. And then Alan McDonald uh, made a speech and he said, I hope nothing happens tomorrow. I hope nothing happens tomorrow. But I'm not going to stand before a committee and say that I signed off on these O-rings. So I cannot do it. And so Alan's boss, who knew little about the O-rings, signed off on it. And there was tremendous pressure from NASA and the government, and they had politics and ego and uh, societal expectations, and what they later came to call go fever. I probably don't even have to explain to you what that means. They had go fever. They could not stop. And there was a bit of arrogance as well. For 25 years, NASA had lost no one. 25 straight years. And Within those 25 years, they even rescued Apollo 13 mid-flight. So you could imagine just how high the confidence was. That morning, the morning of the launch, the temperature was 22 degrees. The O-rings had only been tested to 53 degrees. And there were icicles hanging off the uh, launch pad. They had to de-ice the launch pad three times. Alan McDonald was there, and his pre-mortem of the situation had told him that the O-rings might fail because what they realized was that because the O-rings were never tested below 53 degrees, they lacked the resiliency when the temperatures dropped, meaning the function of an O-ring is it's a gasket, and it has to be able to be compressed, and then it has to be able to push back. If it's compressed and it stays compressed, then gases can leak through, which would defeat the whole purpose of what an O-ring does. But sure enough, at 22 degrees in the morning, well below 53 degrees, the O-rings were compressed. Space shuttle lifted off. And 73 seconds later, space shuttle exploded because as they found out through the postmortem, which confirmed the pre-mortem, the O-rings failed. And the way they show this in court was just a glass of ice water. They stuck the material of the O-ring in, compressed it, and for several seconds, it didn't return to its original shape. And here's what Alan McDonald says in his book, Truth, Lies, and O-rings. He says, the NASA Challenger uh, uh, story, it's not about risk, but it's about an institution's unwillingness to face reality. 
unwillingness to embrace the reality of truth. Tell you another story. A researcher and psychologist named Godman is the single most successful marriage researcher and therapist on the planet today. More than any other therapist, he boasts a startling 91% success rate at being able to predict whether a marriage will succeed or end in divorce. Incredibly high. Uh, He has studied relationships and intimacy for over 40 years. And one of the ways he does this is he invites couples to come to his facility and he asks them to wait in a waiting room before they enter, uh, start their official appointment. But what the couple doesn't realize is that the appointment has already begun and they are being observed already in the waiting room. And within the five to ten minutes that they are waiting, Gottman can predict, which later uh, uh, studies will verify Uh, predict from the waiting room whether a couple has a good chance of making it as a couple or not. And the key factor, and the key factor that he looks for is what he calls contempt. And you know how he detects contempt? One of the primary ways he detects contempt is in eye rolling. When he sees a man or a woman rolling their eyes in the waiting room because they're talking about Jane and Jane is causing trouble again and, oh my gosh, this again. And then he says, oh, that's contempt. Okay, we'll have to verify that one. And and, uh, he's written uh, over nine books on the topic, uh, but all of them uh, have this one statement uh, in the books and and the statement is this, contempt it, it's, it, 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 it's not just there in a person, but it's bred in the relationship. And what breeds contempt in a relationship is a couple's unwillingness to discuss all issues. And he says this, a couple, a healthy couple that will last uh, over a lifetime, they will not have all of their issues resolved. They will have conflict after conflict after conflict. They will have many disagreements, things they do not see eye to eye. They will simply have to agree to disagree. But, but they have what he calls open issues. There is a willingness on both of their parts to talk about everything. You don't have to resolve everything but you have to talk about everything. It's not a void of disagreement, but a presence of light. So, here's the application. Bill Hybels, one of my favorite uh, preachers, is the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in uh, South Barrington, Illinois. And... Uh, he has this phrase, this little principle that he uses with his staff. And uh, it's called the last 10%. And I love this phrase. And I've been thinking about it a lot. And he says this. He says, most people have 
90% of the conversation. Even what a person would call a really hard conversation is usually only 90% of the conversation because they are unwilling to have the last 10% of the conversation. Because the last 10% is the thing that you actually really want to and need to say, but you don't know how to say it without rattling the cage. It feels too risky. It feels like you might hurt feelings or cause irreparable harm. It feels like maybe the timing isn't right. It feels like maybe it's just better to leave it be, better to ride it out. You know, one of the things I learned in my marriage uh, over the years is that love, by definition, is confrontation. And if we're not willing to confront each other, it's hard to love. Even if you say to somebody, are you thirsty? What are you saying when you ask somebody if they're thirsty? You're confronting something that you're witnessing. You look thirsty. You're smacking your lips. You, you had a long run. It's a hot day. You're assessing their situation, their context. You're wanting to meet their need. You're wanting to love on them. But to do that, you have to ask the confrontation of question. Are you thirsty? You have to risk rejection. What if they're not? Innocent example. But are you willing to love somebody to the point of confrontation? You know, I think that uh, it's really hard to have the last 10% of the conversation. It's not an easy thing. You know, I can think of one conversation I had last week where I felt like I had the last 10% of the conversation. It was really hard. It was a lot of work. And it was very scary for me. And I remember last year a conversation that I would categorize as last 10% conversation. I remember four years ago, I had a conversation that I would categorize as last 10%. I remember 11 years ago when I had a conversation that I would categorize as a last 10% conversation. Do you know why I remember these conversations? Why I can tell you last week, last year, four years, 11 years? Because they're memorable. I will never forget these. And did all of them, did all four conversations turn out great? Nope. And I'm telling you, though, over time, it doesn't matter. Because in general... I'm moving in the right direction. In general, I have a desire to embrace light. Because why? Because it's time. There's never a good time to have a last 10% conversation. It's always easier to procrastinate, to put it off. It's always easier to kick the can down the road. But when do we get to define reality? When do we sit down with somebody and say, you know, I think this is what we're supposed to do in general. I don't know if I'm going to say it the right way. I don't know if this is going to come off right or the timing is right. But I want to not accept this 90% we've been calling 100%. 90% is not 100%. I want to have 100% because it's breeding contempt in me. And I feel like someday we might implode. This relationship is going to just keep lowering in value until I just avoid you altogether. I don't want to implode. I don't want to have contempt. And so this is the application. I want to suggest to you 
that you really think long and hard about all the 90% conversations you're having where you should be having the last 10%. And I'm warning you, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to hurt feelings. It's going to be uncomfortable and hard. But in general, you are embracing light. So that's your assignment this week. One more. I want to invite you to do that for yourself. We talked a little bit about the uh, power of sin being in secrets. That when sin is a secret, that's where it really derives its power. So I want to ask you, what's the last 10% about yourself that you're keeping in the dark? And when you are living life in the dark, even if it seems like just the last 10%, your heart is beginning to curve in on itself. And you're losing objectivity. And you don't have the kind of alertness and sobriety that God wants you to have. There is too much delusion in your life. How do we find the strength to do this? Where do we find the wherewithal to do this? You notice, go back to this verse 14 here. Put on the armor of light and then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul isn't saying two different things. He's saying the same thing twice. He's not saying the armor of light is just this way of living. It's just this physical thing that, no, he's saying, no, the light that he speaks of is the person of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who says, you don't have to love darkness rather than light. I have defeated darkness. And it is I who go with you. And my redemptive presence will be with you when you choose to walk in the light. He says this in 1 John. That if you say that there is darkness in your life. And you want to choose light rather than darkness. You are walking with me. And I am with you. And so you are not going to be alone. That isolation and the sense of disconnectedness and aloneness you feel in the dark. When you're in your secret, you don't want to live that way. You want to live connected in the light. And that's the Lord Jesus saying, I will be with you. It's not some generic light. It's the very presence of your Savior. And Lord, would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for your invitation here to walk in the light as you are in the light. And so much of this is relational. And even the very personal uh, affects the relationship. So first, I pray that you would help us to uh, find the courage and the humility We need to be able to uh, have the last 10% of those conversations with our friends, coworkers, with a family member. Help us to do that this week. Help us to move generally in the right direction towards light. God, the time is now. And I pray that we may also be able to confront our own secrets, thus drain sin of its power over us. 
I pray that we can have meaningful, confessional conversations this week. Help us to do that, Jesus, by your presence in our life. For you are our armor of light. And we wrap ourselves in it. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.